Hey everyone, Jason Van Ruler here with another episode of the OK What's Next podcast. In fact, it's episode number 10. How about that? Today, I'm going to be talking with Jake Weidman. Jake is an artist, he's a speaker, and he's also a master penman, of which there are very few in the world. It's a pretty big deal. Jake is a fascinating guy who's clearly passionate about his work. I think you're going to love this interview. Check it out. Welcome back to another episode of the OK What's Next podcast with Jason Van Ruler. Today, I am thrilled to be talking with Jake Weidman. He is an artist and master penman. He's also a really good speaker. I've listened to some of his stuff. Really, really impressive. Jake, thank you so much for being on today. Thanks for having me, Jason. I was telling Jake a little bit before we started that I'm really using this podcast as a reason to buy more pens. So I am, I'm thrilled <laughs> about the wisdom you're going to share, but I'm also just thrilled to be empowered to draw more and buy more pens. So thank you for that. Yep, absolutely. You have my endorsement. That is great. For those that maybe aren't familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your work all entail? What's your life look like right now? Tell us about you. Well, I'm a professional artist and a certified master penman. And so I work across a wide array of different mediums from traditional drawing and painting, typically realistic. And then I do sculpture in wood, antler, bronze. And then the master penman portion is really my calligraphy. And that's master penman is it's a very old, very vintage title. There's only nine of us left in the world with that designation. It essentially means somebody who has reached that upper echelon of proficiency in the fine art of calligraphy. So calligraphy has very quickly become sort of like my special sauce that I've mixed into all of my other art forms. And so, you know, I'll do like traditional pieces that are very straightforward calligraphic works, you know, words going down a page, but then I'll also integrate those into my realistic drawing and painting and even into some of my carving and sculpture as well. So I do a wide array of, of different works and I'm always exploring, always trying out new art forms and figuring out new ways of sweetening the pot, as it were. Yeah, I love that. I saw some of the carvings too, and that is amazing. How did you get into this kind of area? I mean, was art just always important to you or that's something you discovered later in life or how did that work? Yeah, I grew up always doing art. In fact, my parents knew since the age of three, they said, we were never worried when we couldn't find you because we knew that you would always be up in your room, either drawing or coloring in a coloring book. And so it's been something that has followed me all of my life. You know, I really didn't think I was ever going to make a living out of it all the way through graduating from college. I didn't think art was going to be my main bread and butter. I thought it was going to be sort of just this passion of mine that that I would continue to do for all of my life, but never really saw like making a career out of it. It chose me as much as I chose it, which is often how it goes when we're speaking of calling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was there a giant shift, you know, where it's kind of one day you're thinking, I can't make a living out of this and the next day you can, or was it just something that happened more incrementally? You know, it was born out of survival, really. I graduated in 2008. I had this shiny new degree in psychology from Biola University. And so I was sitting on a, a mountain of school debt and facing either going back to school, getting more debt to get my doctorate to really like get a degree that I could really use and put to work or just try and 
kind of chip away those student loans and figure out something to do in the interim. And that something to do happened to be art. There was like opportunity after opportunity that just kept popping up. And, you know, I couldn't really get a job doing anything else, but art all of a sudden was the one thing that was paying the bills. They weren't the most glamorous or lavish jobs in art, but I think I fit more of the stereotype at that time of being a starving artist. And, but when you are a starving artist, you don't get picky about the work and it actually helps build an appetite for different media during that time. So I was taking on any and every job I really could, even if I wasn't like completely like skilled in that particular area, I would figure it out as I went. Mm. And that really started to grow my skill set. And so I was doing things that were really unique, you know, all the while never having any kind of formal training whatsoever, just a lot of like self-learning and it just continued to blossom. It continued to grow and grow. And I was like, you know, this could be an actual business. So what was that like for you to kind of have that insight of, yeah, this is actually a thing. I think I could make it go. It was actually right around the year that I got my certificate as a master penman. So the final test in order to become a master penman is you have to actually execute your own certificate. And then it's signed off by the president of the organization and your mentor within the organization. I mean, I guess that really was the only kind of formal training that I had was being brought into this association underneath a mentor to learn American heritage handwriting and disciplines within calligraphy that date back all the way to the ancient scribes. It marked a new level of seriousness for me and in taking on this title, which nobody really knew, right? I mean, nobody really understood what a master penman is. By and large, people (laughs) still don't. (laughs) I know it sounds cool. Not everybody knows what it is, but it sounds cool. Right, exactly. I mean, you put master in front of everything and it's like, wow, well, that sounds very official. I think that was like really my tipping point of my career was getting my certificate. It brought a new level of seriousness. And then things just started happening. I was approached by someone who had seen my work and said, Jake, you have a phenomenal thing going here, but you're sort of like all over the map as far as like what you're trying to do as far as business. Because again, I was just trying to survive. They said it would be really good if you sort of gave rails to your business and built a good business plan and get team around you. Mm. So this older gentleman stepped into my life, introduced me to more older gentlemen (laughs) who are far more versed in business than I was and and really made up for the skills that I lacked at that time. And so thankfully I knew enough about business. My dad is very much a business guy. He writes business plans for all kinds of people. So he helped me draft my own and present it to these group of guys who some of which actually became real deal, full-on patrons of my work, championing my work, not only from an infrastructural aspect of helping me formulate business, my go-to-market strategy and my brand promise, all those things that are like chewing glass for an artist, but are still (laughs) critically important if you're going to rise to the level of professionalism. So not only that, but they also kind of funded me to get me started, get my career started. And that was absolutely critical because it gave me the opportunity to create the pieces that I have been dying to create, but nobody was really asking for yet because they didn't know what to ask for. 
So that was a very special time. So that was right around 2011 is when the dominoes started to fall. And then everything just happened in pretty quick succession after that. Okay. Yeah. What I hear in that is such importance of community, right? I mean, not that you're not talented, but had you been just doing this on your own, it might've looked very different, right? Because these people brought in some skills that maybe you wouldn't have had otherwise. And so that community piece, I think sometimes we overlook, but it is really important and vital to our success. Yeah, absolutely. And you can even look back historically and you can look at the importance of patrons when it comes to to the lives and the, the success of artists. The most classic example of this and, and where the real prototype of this started was, you know, back during the Renaissance where you had the Medici family who were like, they were the bankers, they were the business people. And they came around and supported the artists. They actually plucked the artists out of obscurity in many times and gave them a job, put them to work, commissioned them to do things that they could recognize that they had the unique skill for. And so, you know, it's like you had Michelangelo, Leonardo, just sort of sitting along on the street side, just waiting to be plucked out. And, you know, it took the Medici and in a lot of ways, like Medici in tandem with the popes during that time that were funding the greatest artwork that the world had ever known. That was not always an amicable relationship. You know, Pope Julius and Michelangelo, Pope Julius, who commissioned the Sistine Chapel, he was a bit of a rough guy. Before he became a pope, he came out of a life of piracy. He was a pirate for a long time. And so, you know, I always think like his memoirs would read from piracy to papacy. That's a great title. I like that. This pope knew how to get out of people the things that he ultimately wanted. Because the truth be told, Michelangelo did not want to paint the Sistine Chapel. He thought the architecture of the chapel to begin with was subpar. He would much rather be carving stone than doing fresco, but that's what he was commissioned and called to do. And he created the most beautiful chapel in the world. And that really helped give him direction. As contentious as that relationship might be, the patron in that scenario is very important. And the same is true of like Brunelleschi, who was an architect and he was like belligerent. He was angry. He was, he was smarter than everybody and he let them know it in the most brutal way possible. He was absolutely impossible to work with, but he was actually the architect that was able to create the dome for the Duomo in Florence you know, that was something that the architects dreamed of. They dreamed of this person. They said, we are going to build this Duomo and we're not going to complete the dome, trusting that God will deliver in the right time somebody to come along and complete it. And so, you know, while they didn't recognize it, it was the bankers, it was the patrons who did. So absolutely, it's the community, it's patrons who come along, who support artists, even given all of their eccentricities and this wild hair that they have, Patrons are so critically important to the arts because they come along and in this collaborative way, bring beauty into the world. Wow. That's just a great history lesson too. I didn't know half the stuff you said. That's beautiful. What it leads me to wonder is what's it like as an artist for you when someone is a patron and sees you? Because you're kind of talking about, you know, you existed, you've got this talent, but it's not necessarily recognized. And then you have a person who says, hey, I see something in you, Jake. I want to invest in it. You're worth something. What is that like as an artist? I mean, that has to be an amazing feeling when you get that call or that message saying, I want to be on your team. 
it's every artist's dream, right? For someone to come along and say, you know, what are the things that you want to do? What are the things that you've been dying to do? And how can I come alongside you and make that happen? That's every artist's dream. It was certainly mine, something I could have never dreamed of. But thankfully, I think by God's good grace, I've experienced many times over. And thankfully, they've been much more kind-hearted and less mercenary than Pope Julius. They've been people where there's absolute alignment on the spiritual side that helped me to link arms with somebody like that. So when individuals like that do come into my life, I mean, I recognize that it is sacred, it is holy ground, and it's an opportunity to not only lean into, but to rise up to, because it's like the patrons in a lot of ways are calling you to that next level. They're removing some of the issues that are in your way that allow your gift to really flourish. So it's massively world-changing. I mean, it expands your imagination for what is possible and for what the limits of your skills are. You're always striving as an artist to continually push your skills to the next level, but sometimes you actually need someone to open the gate to the corral for you to actually be able to run, to really sprint with your gift. So it's a wonderful opportunity when those things do happen. And thankfully, starting tomorrow, I'm starting on what will be the greatest commission I've received yet, single greatest commission I've received yet. And it's going to be a massive undertaking that will take the majority of the rest of 2021. What is that like to be at the beginning of that? You know, it's very daunting. Uh, I think it was Matisse who said painting is the easiest thing in the world, but beginning a painting is the hardest. And so it's like, it's that starting a piece of work is always like, it's laden with so much intimidation, especially when it's something that is a a very grand piece because the blank canvas always kind of begs the question to the artist, like, do you actually have what it takes again? Are you actually as good as the last piece that you created? What if you screw this piece up? What if it doesn't go exactly to plan? What if you end up hating this piece? You know, there's all these different questions that you face at the beginning and that are a real challenge. You know, you just have to, as murky as those waters are, it's like you almost have to just dive in headfirst and just go aggressively after it. And then once you're in, it's like the water settles and you get used to it, you get acclimated, and then you find yourself in that place where you're comfortable in your gift and you can start seeing your way forward. But right now it's super exciting. It's super nerve wracking. There's a lot of emotions that are building at this point, but it's sort of that first crack of thunder for a great big storm and you just have to walk into it. I am so excited for you. I I wonder, what do you tell yourself when those questions are really loud in your head? I mean, the way that you describe it, Sounds kind of scary, right? So what do you tell yourself when the question of, will I be able to do this? Am I going to be good enough? How do you answer that? I tell myself, start small, start with something simple. Like a lot of times I don't go right to canvas with a piece. That's just not the way that, you know, my artwork that is so technically demanding, how that really starts out. And then, you know, I'm working with precious materials like calfskin vellum and gold leaf. And so there's a lot of intimidation. It's like the material alone is very dear. And so it's like to approach that, it's something that you have to be ready for. And it takes like walking that piece out 
incrementally in the smallest of concept sketches. Like some of my most profound pieces were sketched out on napkins and butcher paper. You know, it's like I get the material that's so easy to just burn through, just absolutely trash. Like if I don't like it, then it's it's okay to actually crumple it up and throw it away. But for me, it's sort of because it takes away the, the intimidation of the material. And it's just me sort of messing around, getting my feet wet, essentially. That's where I start. So I usually have sort of my rough concept sketch book. And that's where I start just laying out my ideas. There's a lot of artists that kind of hold on to this idea that they have to sit around and wait for inspiration to come to them. I think that doesn't work, especially as a professional artist. You know, if you're sitting around waiting for inspiration to show up, you will be sitting around a lot. It's work for me, Jake. I'm 40 years in. I know it's coming. I know it's coming, <laughs> yeah. man. One of these days. Yeah. Picasso has a great quote about that. He says, inspiration will come, but it has to find you working. And so for me, it's like when I actually, like, I can't just sit there and think about something or wait for it. I actually have to like start moving a pencil around a sheet of paper. And that's where I start teasing out my ideas. It's like, it doesn't all happen just in my head. It happens on the paper. And that's where I can actually feel things out and start working out things compositionally or structurally, if it's a sculpture piece, what is the flow going to be like? And just start creating almost like the faintest shadow of what is to come. So then I can start pulling that concept out of the darkness of my own thoughts of my own fears and everything else and bring it into the light and then really start working on it, take a really good hard look at it. Wow. There's so much good insight in there just about making it small, but also just your process and how important the process is. Because I think we overlook that sometimes. And really, it's the most vital part of the whole thing. Something that I'm wondering as we're kind of coming to our time here is, this sounds amazing to me, but I'm curious, what about it is important to you? So I could glean some things that are very important about this project and all of your projects. But when you look at a project of this size, what matters most to you about it? The part that matters most to me about it is the end result. Everybody's thinking about the end result is what is this piece ultimately going to be? And I see the end result as not as like the finished piece itself after I put on the last stroke or sign my name in the corner of the canvas. I think the finished result is actually in the response of the viewer themselves. There is a collaboration that's going on first with the patron who has this idea of sponsoring a great work. It's up to me to make that piece incarnate, to give it flesh. And then the final response is from the viewer. That's the final turn of this magic trick that is art, that is this beautiful communication of the artful process. And so for me, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the end viewer. I'm thinking about how is this going to be received? What is it that I want people to ultimately take away with from this? And this process, what I just described is actually, that's not my own philosophy. That's actually Dorothy Sayers, who was uh, one of the Inklings who met with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And she was an author and a playwright. And she described that process, the process of creating in almost this Trinitarian 
way. So you have God the Father as like the conception. And so that's the beginning idea of what the art is. You have God the Son who is the incarnation, which is where the art piece actually becomes flesh. It actually takes on tangible material. And then the last portion is the response, which she equates that to the Holy Spirit. And so in that, you have this beautiful triangle that really breaks down the full creation process of art and how it actually comes back to itself in this triangular way so that even the response informs the conception and that informs the next piece. So that's really important for me as an artist to really understand, you know, how is my art playing itself out? How is it ultimately landing on the eyes, the hearts, the souls of the viewer who are going to behold it when it is all finished. When my work is long done, and this piece hopefully exists even long after I am gone, it's still going to live on. It's still going to be doing work in the eyes of the beholders. And so for me, like that's what I'm thinking about. At that point, it's completely out of my control, right? So it requires me to lean heavily into my relationship with God and ask him to really direct this piece, whether this piece has like a true biblically based story or is more of a broad story. I still believe that, you know, all truth is God's truth. All beauty is his beauty as he is the origin of both. And so I rely heavily on him for every art piece thinking about how it is ultimately going to meet the viewer because through art, which is a form of communication, you're building relationship. And so that is paramount in my mind as I begin the piece, as I am in the throes of it and as I am finishing it up. Wow. That is so well said. I'm going to be reflecting on that for a long time, man. I love the way that you look at it. And I, I think just the reliance on God for all of that, just to kind of see that through. Mm. That's brilliant. And you're a brilliant artist. So I cannot oh, wait you. to see this stuff. I will link to your site and everything so people can see what you're working on. You've taught me a lot today. And so I just appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Jake. Absolutely, Jason. It's a real pleasure to be with you to kind of come out of my hidey hole of my art studio, <laughs> <laughs> practice some social skills and to commune, to talk about the art that I do. So thank you so much for giving me this privilege. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. What a fascinating guy. If you like what you've heard, check out the rest of our episodes. I hope you have a great week. 